thank you so much for that introduction. And um, I was warned that there would be a lot of homeschooling families here tonight, which I think is really cool. I did homeschool my two sons. And um, so I, I'm really glad to see that some of you have uh, come here with your, with your teenagers. And these are certainly the most cutting edge issues of our day. The topics I cover in my book, Love Thy Body, are the things like uh, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. And the, the reason that they're so difficult for us to deal with is that people are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? And so my goal tonight is to give you the tools that you can use to explain what Christianity teaches on these issues in a positive way that will give, equip you to talk not only to secular people, but also to your Christian friends as well. Now, the first thing we need to do is understand how secular people think, right? The first clue of effective communication is know your audience. So how do secular people think about these issues? And, and let me give you the big picture first. The big picture is that throughout history, most people have thought, most civilizations have thought that there's a natural order and a moral order, and that the two are an integrated unity, and therefore our knowledge will be a single integrated unity as well. But after the rise of modern science, many people began to say, no, 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 no. The only reliable knowledge we have is what we can know by science what we can see, hear, weigh, and measure, empirical facts. Well, what does that imply for your knowledge of God, for our knowledge of morality? Those aren't things you can stuff into a test tube or study under a microscope. And so many people began to say, well, th those aren't really truths at all. They're just personal preference. That's just your personal opinion. And so uh, it's, uh, philosophers sometimes um, illustrate this with uh, this little diagram um, using the metaphor of two stories in a building. So in the lowest, lowest story is science. That's treated as public truth. That means it's valid for everyone. That's objective, it's universal. Theology and morality have been moved to the upper story where they're treated as private, subjective, relativistic. This is where you hear people say, well, that can be true for you, but not true for me. Right? When they talk like that, that means they're in the upper story. And of course, your concept of truth is foundational to everything else. And so when we come to these moral issues, we'll find that we have the same division. The concept of the human being has actually been split in half into an upper and a lower story. It's usually defined in terms of body versus person. In other words, body is what we can know scientifically, you know, physiology, chromosomes, anatomy, and so on. And personhood, though, is what is our moral stance? What, what moral status does it mean to be a human being? Let, uh, <coughs> let me show you this. It's easiest if I just jump in with an example. So let's take abortion. A few years ago, an article appeared by a British broadcaster who said she had always been proudly pro-choice until she became pregnant with her own baby. And then she said she began to struggle. She writes, I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. Yet if I hadn't wanted it, I would think of it as just a group of cells that it was okay to kill. She realized that didn't make sense. A fetus doesn't become a baby just because somebody wants it. So she began to research the subject. And after several months, she reached this conclusion. She said, in terms of science, I have to agree that life begins at conception. But, you knew there was a but coming, right? <laughs> but, in terms of moral rights, she says, perhaps the fact of life is not what's important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. So do you see that? What's happened to the concept of the human being? It's been split into two parts. If you can be a human at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two different things. So this is a radically fragmented, divided, dualistic view of what it means to be a human being. 
And, and what you just saw is really the way most professional bioethicists argue today. They, most professional, not, not ordinary people that you meet in the street necessarily, but I just want you to know professional bioethicists, the ones who set the tone of our national debate, all agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that? Well, they argue that merely being human is not enough to qualify for legal protection. The fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person, usually defined in terms of mental abilities, a certain level of uh, self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. So what bioethicists are saying is that even though the fetus is human, it's nothing more than a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can, it can be used for research and experiments. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, as Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. And that's exactly the language that you find in medical articles. That they talk about the medical waste as they throw out these little babies from abortion. In other words, being human is no longer enough for human rights. And this is actually called personhood theory. Now, what's the most obvious problem with it? If personhood is not related to being biologically human, then what's it based on? Some will say, some secular bioethicists will say, well, the fetus does become a, a human sometime before, a person rather, sometime before birth. But others today are saying, no, it, can ha it doesn't become a person until after birth. Crick and Watson, the two famous scientists who discovered DNA, said you should give a fetus three days of genetic testing after it's born before you decide to call it a person, because after all, some defects don't show up until after birth. Peter Singer, who is an ethics professor at Princeton University, says even three years of age is a gray area. How much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? Well, <laughs> I won't talk about your toddler. <laughs> so the lesson here is that when personhood is separated from biology, it becomes arbitrary. There's no objective criteria. Every bioethicist ends up drawing the line at a different place, depending on their own private views and values, or even their own religion. Read, me, read with me what a Yale University professor wrote in the New York Times. He said, the question in abortion is not really about life in any biological sense. Instead, is asking about the magical moment at which a cluster of cells becomes more than a mere physical thing. It is a question about the soul. So who's bringing religion into the public square? You know, Christians are often criticized, right? Don't bring your religion into the public square. Keep it in the private arena. But this is a religious statement. So it's really time to turn the tables on this. When personhood is rooted in biology, then we have a marker of human status that's empirically testable, objective, something we can identify scientifically. So to be pro-science is to be pro-life. Now what about euthanasia? The thinking among bioethicists today and euthanasia is exactly the same, just in reverse. According to personhood theory, if you're mentally disabled, if you no longer have a certain level of cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously still human. What was the most high-profile euthanasia case? In, yeah, T Terry Schiavo, exactly. And so for those of you who might not know her, she a uh, young woman who um, suffered brain damage with a heart attack. And her family, her, her parents wanted to keep her alive. They were happy to take care of her. Um, it was her husband who wanted her food and water discontinued so that she would die, and, which is what happened. But Terry Schiavo, um, 
um, the, the media presented it as a right to die case, but Terry wasn't dying. She wasn't terminally ill. And so the real issue was personhood theory. And um, a, a bioethicist at the University of Florida was asked, do you think Terry is a person? And he said, no, I do not. I think, I think having awareness is an essential criterion for personhood. So obviously, Terry was still human. She hadn't become an alien species or something. She was still human, but she was not considered a person. So once again, being human is not enough for human rights today. Now, scripture is opposed to this division, this dualistic view of the human being. It teaches that a human being is an integrated unity. We are embodied spirits, embodied spirits, and both are central to our identity. This comes out nicely in the parallelism of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. Our soul has sunk down into the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. See, what, what our soul experiences is expressed through our body. Keep my words in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. When I kept silent, that is, refused to repent of my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. So the Bible treats the human being as a psycho-physical unity. The inner life of the soul is expressed through the outer life of the body. In fact, the only way I can know your inner life is through your body. Through your expressions, through your speech. Now, what many people found most helpful in my book, Love Thy Body, is I show that this same division that we've just talked about in the, in the life issues, abortion, euthanasia, and so on, also affects the sexuality issues, will help us to understand how secular people think. So let's look at the hookup culture, let's look at sexuality. The hookup, the hookup culture rests on the assumption that sex can be purely physical, cut off from the whole person, with no hint of love or commitment. Young people know the script all too well. In Love Thy Body, I give several poignant quotes from college students, like Alicia, who says, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. A student from Rolling Stone magazine put it this way. She said, the mistake people make is they assume there are two very distinct elements in a relationship, one emotional and one sexual, and they pretend like there are clean lines between them. Do you recognize the language of dualism? She's practically verbally describing this little diagram. Now, critics of the hookup culture, which includes a lot of Christians, people who would criticize this, say it gives sex too much importance. But in reality, it gives sex too little importance. Uh, let me give you a quote, another quote from Rolling Stone magazine. Don't you, love the, don't you love the internet? You get access to magazines you would never ordinarily read. <laughs> Rolling Stone magazine again. And this was a young man from Austin, Texas, by the way, who said, uh, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. So the hookup mentality expresses a worldview that says your body can be treated as purely physical, driven by physical impulses and instincts cut off from the rich inner life of the whole person. No wonder it's creating a trail of wounded people. People are trying to live out a secularist ethic that does not fit who they truly are. We do not naturally thrive on casual, meaningless sexual encounters. Even science shows the interconnection between body and person with the discovery of hormones, oxytocin and vasopressin, that are released during sexual intercourse. Our bodies make a chemical bond, even if we don't intend to. 
as um, Miriam Grossman, who's a UCLA psychiatrist, said, you might say we are designed to bond. Or as a, uh, a, a theologian at Duke University put it, because of the uh, hormones that are released, you know what oxytocin is? It's the uh, hormone that makes you bond to people. It makes you feel trusting and, and close to somebody. It was first discovered um, for its role in childbearing because it's released in mother when she has a, a baby and it helps her to bond with a newborn. And so they were quite surprised when they discovered it. it's also released, released during sexual activity. And a Duke University professor put it this way. She said, um, when Paul says... You don't have sex with a prostitute because you know that that you're, you become one body with her. She says, uh, because of the, these hormones, what Paul is really saying is, don't you know that your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Or another psychologist called it an in, an involuntary chemical bond, an involuntary chemical. Uh, a connection or bond, something like that. Whether you mean to, there was even an article in Glamour magazine on casual sex warning you, warning young women, that um, you may make a chemical connection to this person even if you're trying to have merely casual sex. Biology may trump your intentions. All that to say, in a biblical worldview, this is acknowledged. You cannot have casual sex because your body makes a promise whether you intend to or not. The most complete and intimate physical union is meant to express the most complete and intimate union of the whole person in the whole life commitment of marriage. So there's no split. You don't have to say, well, my body's going to be involved with this person, but of course I'm not going to be committed to this person emotionally. No, the Christian ethic is incarnational. What that means is, what you do with your body is meant to be in harmony with who you are as a whole person. Well, what about homosexuality then? People were very surprised at how quickly homosexuality won the day, legally, socially. Why is it? It's because it's the logical implication of the same divided concept of the human being one that devalues the body. Think of it this way. Even my homosexual friends will agree with me on this, that you know, none of them really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity then, is implicitly to contradict that design. It's to say, why should the structure of my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? We have to help people to see that this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. And by accepting that your mind can contradict your biology, it leads to inner fragmentation, self-alienation. You are alienated from your own body. Now, some people have responded to me by saying, well, wait, 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 wait. If sexual orientation is rooted in our genes, then they are being true to their biology. The trouble is there's no conclusive evidence of a biological cause. Let's quote the American Psychological Association as our authority here. It says, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is, deter is determined by any particular factor. And in context, they've talked about both social and biological factors. You know, there may be correlates, but there's no causation. In fact, more recent research has found that about 80% of people who come out as homosexual change their sexual identity label at least once. That is back to heterosexual or bisexual, queer, and so on. 80% change their sexual identity label at least once. That means some of them it's more. 
That does not sound like a trait that's biologically determined. An article in the New Scientist reported on these findings under the title, Sexuality is Fluid. It's time to get past born that way. So that's where the science is today. You'll find a lot of homosexual activists still arguing, I can't help it, it's based on my biology, but that's not what the science is showing now. Sexual fluidity is what science is currently showing. Now, in religious circles, you will sometimes hear people say, well, God made me gay, right? God makes some people gay. This is how God made me. I met a former homosexual who uh, is now married and has children who gave a very good answer to that. He said, if God made some people gay, then God has played a cruel joke on them. He's engineered their minds and emotions for attraction to the same sex, and yet has created their physiology to be in direct opposition to that attraction. So the question is, would God create people to be torn in two conflicting directions like that, to be alienated from their own body? In the Christian worldview, things like conflict, self-division, self-alienation, are the results of the fall, not creation. Today, it's widely accepted that if somebody experiences that conflict between body and mind, it's the mind that wins, right? That's what counts, your feelings, your desires. Our answer as Christians should be, why accept such a demeaning view of the body? The Christian ethic is holistic. Our mind and emotions are meant to be in tune with our body. We're called to respect our biological identity. So it's an ethic that overcomes self-alienation. It leads to self-integration, a sense of internal wholeness and unity. Now, why does secularism have such a low view of the body? Every ethic stems ultimately from a view of nature, because our bodies are part of nature. So the liberal secular ethic derives from the theory that nature is a product of blind, undirected forces. There was a recent New Yorker article that put it like this. The loyalty oath of modernity, isn't that a grand phrase? <laughs> the, the loyalty oath that you must take if you want to be considered a modern person is that nature is without conscious design and the emergence of Homo sapiens was without meaning or telos. You know, are you familiar with the word telos? It's from the Greek, and it means goal or purpose. So the emergence of Homo sapiens was, was without goal or purpose. Well, the, the implication there, then, is the human body is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, and it has no intrinsic purpose. People like Richard Dawkins, you know the new atheist, people like Richard Dawkins. He likes to say, you're just a meat machine. Right? He says, you're just, you're just a meat machine. And if that's true, if the body has no intrinsic purpose, if it's just a meat machine, then the mind is free to use it any way it wants. Did you catch that logic? If the body has no intrinsic purpose, then the mind is free to use it any way it wants. In fact, that's exactly how homosexuality is defended by a well-known lesbian named Camille Paglia. And if you know Camille Paglia, yes, some Christians read her stuff because she's a little, she's a little iconoclastic and fun to read. Uh, and and one, one reason she's iconoclastic, by the way, is that she disagrees with most feminists who say gender is just a social construction. And she says, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. But then she asks, why not defy nature? And these are her words. After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So catch the logic here. If our bodies are the products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no purpose that, the, that we are morally obligated to respect. 
Your body gives you no moral message. It gives you no clue to your identity. We may do with them as we see fit. By contrast, a Christian view of nature is teleological, which comes from that same word, telos. Telos meaning goal or purpose. So a teleological view means nature does have a purpose. It was created by God for his own purposes. But you don't even need to, to reference Christianity to see it. Science itself, it's evidence from observation that living things are designed for a purpose. Eyes are, made for hear eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, fins are made for swimming, wings are made for flying. In fact, the whole de uh, development of an organism is driven by an inbuilt genetic plan or blueprint. So science itself is telling us that nature exhibits a design, a plan, an order, a purpose. And what Christians are saying is that when we live in harmony with that purpose, we will be happier and healthier. In Love Thy Body, I tell a story of a young woman named Jean who lived as a lesbian for many years, and today is married and has two children. And Jean said the turning point came when I, came, I finally came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. So notice she didn't talk about guilt and shame and any negative emotions that caused her to change. What caused her to change was recognizing God had a purpose in making me female and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. In fact, in my book, Love Thy Body, I have lots and lots of stories. Don't think of it as just a, a book of um, moral arguments. I have lots of stories, and in fact, one of my favorite is at the beginning of the chapter on homosexuality, I give an extended story about a young man named Sean who grew up identifying as homosexual, and he said, I was exclusively attracted to other men. Today, he is married and has three children. And by the way, he's also a Christian ethics professor um, in London. Now, what's interesting about Sean's story is he grew up in a gay-affirming family and attended a gay-affirming church. So again, he wasn't driven by shame or guilt. Why did he change? He says, I stopped defining my identity by my sexual feelings and started regarding my physical body as who I was. His goal was not to try to change his feelings directly, because that doesn't work very often. He said, my goal was to acknowledge what I already had, which was a male body, as a good gift from God. And eventually, my feelings started to follow suit. So do you notice his, his logic was he didn't defy nature, as Camille Paglia put it in defending lesbianism. He didn't defy nature. He accepted nature. He accepted his embodied existence as fundamentally good. And that's really the question at the core of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material causes? or a cosmos designed by a loving creator, which is therefore intrinsically good. Now, what about transgenderism? The transgender movement is gaining acceptance even faster than the homosexual movement did. <laughs> and the reason is it's the extension of the same logic. People are, God did make us rational creatures. <laughs> What is logical ends up winning the day. The same devaluing of the body. In fact, transgender activists argue explicitly that your gender has nothing to do with your biological sex. A, D a BBC documentary put it this way, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. At war, with you talk about self-alienation. <laughs> You've got this inner war going on, and in that war, who wins? It's the mind that wins. 
Let me give you an example. Um, so uh, Jessica Savano is a male to female transsexual, stands six feet four inches tall, and started a Kickstarter page for a documentary to be titled, I Am Not My Body. Well, that kind of sense, says it all, right? My body is not who I am. It's not part of my authentic self. The same denigration of the body can be detected in the language used in laws enacting transgender policies. These are called SOGI laws, S-O-G-I, sexual orientation and gender identity. And here's the language used by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Transgender is a term used to describe people whose gender identity differs from the sex the doctor marked on their birth certificate. So you kind of picture a doctor wondering, hmm, what sex should we mark down for this baby? Instead of observing it as a scientific fact. And what's the language often used? Assigned at birth, right? And the implication is that the, it's almost sinister overtones, right? That, that, that this is an act of oppression. That it's an imposition of restricted label. <laughs> In fact, I recently read an article written by a transgender activist saying something terrible happens to every child the minute they're born. And they're built up and built up and built up. And finally, at the end of the article, you find out what it was. They called it a boy or a girl. You know, that this is limiting this child's whole future. So today, kids down to kindergarten are being taught to denigrate their bodies, to be estranged from their own bodies, to be taught that their biological sex is irrelevant. It has nothing to do with who they are as whole persons. You can have boy parts and not be a boy. You can have girl parts and not be a girl. In fact, the trend is reaching down to newborns. Some parents are raising their children gender neutral, meaning they don't tell their children if they're a boy or a girl. Uh, there's a Facebook page for these parents. They call these babies babies, babies. And what's fascinating is that the Facebook page says point blank, there is no such thing as biological sex. Oh, sure, people have bodies, chromosomes, genitals, but calling this sex is a social construct, construction rather than a biological fact. And the moderator warns, posts referring to biological sex will be flagged. By the way, um, there's a new group that's formed. I forget that what they're calling themselves, but there's a new group of scientists. And they're calling themselves scientists supporting biological sex. We're in a strange age when, bio, when scientists have to come out and saying, yes, we actually believe in biological sex. And Christian's response to this should be, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? I recently read an interview with a 14-year-old girl. Um, this is not in my book because I just read it. Um, but she had lived as a trans boy for three years. At age 11, she said she was a boy. And then at age 14, she reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And which would have been a great story in a book called Love Thy Body. But the interesting thing is that the interview was on a very secular liberal website. So it's fascinating to see, to see even secular people are starting to say the trans movement expresses body hatred. That's a term you're starting to see nowadays. What this means is that Christians have a wonderful opportunity to show that the biblical ethic is based on loving your body, it expresses a positive view of who we are as physically embodied beings, that God gave us your, our bodies and they are intrinsically good. The fall doesn't negate the intrinsic goodness of creation. It's marred it, it's messed it up, but we're not less than human. We're still human beings made in God's image. And our bodies reflect God's own character.
Now, actually, I saw an interview just last night with a, a, a feminist who's, who's been banned permanently from Twitter and Facebook because she says publicly, trans women are not women. That is, trans women are males who claim a female identity, are not women. Uh, she's a British uh, feminist, and she's been banned and um, now permanently from, from Facebook for simply saying, trans, wi trans women are not women. That was enough to get her banned. Um, and last night, I saw her in an interview with a very hostile interviewer um, who kept pressing her. But one, she, one thing she, she kept saying, she, she kept telling him, you can't really change your sex. And he says, well, yes, you can. You can have surgery. You can have hormones. Look, she said, you can't change your chromosomes. You can't change your, your bones. You can't change your muscles. Reducing your testosterone does not turn men into women. And uh, what, she could have referenced this. There was a very popular TED talk by a cardiologist who said, every cell has a sex. What that means is men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. And the TED talk, you can go watch this TED talk. You will, you'll like it. Um, it was posted on YouTube. And when I watched it, I, I read some of the comments underneath it. And dozens of comments, uh, oh, I should tell you what her concern is. As a, as a cardiologist, her concern was that symptoms of an impending heart attack are different for men and for women. And most of the testing, though, is done on men. And so women were coming to see their doctors. The doctors were not seeing the symptoms that they were trained to look for. They were sending the women home, and the women were having heart attacks. So she has started an organization um, to have more uh, scientific research done on women and their symptoms. So that was, the, uh, that was the essence of her talk. Then you read the comments, and you read dozens of people saying, she's so transphobic. <laughs> Whoa, she didn't even talk about transgenderism. But it's because she acknowledged the male female binary, female binary. Just acknowledging it, even for medical purposes, was taboo. And I scrolled down reading these comments, and eventually one wise person <laughs> said, look, look, she's not transphobic. She's just saying that no matter what your gender philosophy is, when you get sick and the doctors put you on the operating table, they need to know your original biological sex to give you the best medical care. Now, you can't raise these issues without somebody saying, oh, and by the way, this, this was raised also last night in the interview. Uh, one of the first questions the interviewer raised was, what about intersex? You're saying male and female are different and that there's a binary. What about intersex? These people are not either male or female. Do you know what intersex means? So, oh, don't read the, don't read the quote yet. <laughs> intersex people are people uh, whose, you, you know, genetic defects can show up anywhere. Your heart, your brain, your, your, your body. It can show up in your reproductive organs, in which case your reproductive organs will not be fully developed. They may be a little bit uh, anomalous. They may be somewhat atypical. Um, and we're talking about 0.02% of the population, right? So it's very, very small. Um, when 99.98% of the population has a particular trait, scientifically, you can say the human race has this trait, sexual, sexual uh, male and female binary. You know, from a scientific point of view, that qualifies. But because of this 0.02%, Intersex people are being used to deconstruct the male-female binary. There's a, there was an article not long ago in the New York Times um, listing all the different ways you can be intersex. Well, yes, if there's one right way, there's lots and lots of wrong ways. You know, it's like a math problem. If there's one right answer to a math problem, <laughs> there's an infinite number of wrong answers. So there's lots of ways in which the reproductive system can go wrong. It's amazing that it doesn't do it, that, that most of the time it goes right. Um, so, the, so, so this article in the New York Times lists all the different forms of intersex and then says, look, there's this huge spectrum in between male and female. Well, no, 
it's still 0.02%. <laughs> it's still not a huge spectrum. It's a tiny, tiny percent. Plus, the majority of them, you can tell that it's female with some anomalies or it's male with some anomalies. Tiny, tiny percent, doctors are not quite sure. Because, you know, it's the same tissue that becomes, the, you know, male, male genitals and female genitals. And so if it's, it's, not, if it's not fully developed, teeny, teeny percent, they're not quite sure. Um, there are still only two gametes, right? There's sperm and there's egg. There's not a spectrum in between. So intersex people, like anyone else with some sort of physical difference, should be accepted and protected. They should not be used as political footballs to deconstruct the male-female binary. When I was writing my book, Love Thy Body, I was actually contacted by an intersex woman, which I thought was pretty cool. And she's a Christian. And she was, by the way, she was one of those tiny minuscule numbers who the, the doctors weren't quite sure if she was male or female. So they raised her as male, but she was always very small for her age. She always felt like a girl, and it was only when, and in college, she was, her, the, the university threatened to take away her scholarship if she didn't deal with her obvious gender issues. So she finally had chromosome, chromosome analysis done as an adult and found out she was intersex. She had a, a very rare form of Turner syndrome. At any rate, so she contacts me, and this, this is what she said. How do you think it feels being a pawn in someone else's game? It hurts to be shoved into the LGBT camp by either side. And by the way, to me, this makes perfect sense. I mean, you have a heart defect, you have, a, you know, you have some other defect. That's, that's not a moral issue. So to have a defect in your, in, in your reproductive system is not a moral issue. Um, but Leanne, oh, did I have her name? Yeah, Leanne has had been in Christian groups where they treated her as if she was transgender or transsexual. Transgender, is, transgender people have perfectly normal genitals, chromosomes, and so on. It's all psychological. Intersex people is a genuine physical issue. So that's the difference. Um, but, but we have to be careful because she, Leanne has been um, uh, in some Christian churches and some Christian circles, they don't understand this yet. And they've acted as she was somehow doing something immoral by having chromosome analysis and discovering she was, she was really intersex and, and uh, claiming a female identity then. Okay. The argument that my secular friends have found most persuasive on these issues, and, and a lot of Christians find it persuasive too, it's based on environmentalism. And you say, what? What's the connection between transgenderism and environmentalism? Well, one thing we have learned from the environmental movement is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we need to respect the structure of nature. When we, it doesn't mean you can't intervene, but when you do intervene, we must work with the natural order. We may not do as we see fit, to use Camille Paglia's term, when it comes to the environment. And in the same way, what Christians are saying is that we should respect the structure of our own biological nature. The biological correspondence between male and female is not some evolutionary accident. It's part of the created order that's declaring the glory of God. Our sexual nature possesses a language that is declaring the glory of God. Okay, let's talk about some uh, practical ways to deal with these issues. One thing we can do is make common cause with the secular people who are starting to see the, the problems with this. Like many feminists now are starting to see that if any, anyone, any man can say, I identify as a female, then what does female mean? What does woman mean? It has no, it has no definite meaning anymore. And as you probably know, uh, the, the, the movement's more advanced in Britain, and so there have been, already been several cases of men claiming to be transgender and being allowed uh, into women's prisons and then promptly sexually assaulting 
the women there. Um, or men, people t claiming to be transgender and getting into women's shelters and sexually assaulting the women there. So feminists are starting to realize that this is a problem. Uh, if, if you can claim to be a woman no matter what your biological sex, then you, then you can't protect women any, anymore. To protect women's rights, we must be able to say what a woman is. If sex is just a social construct, as postmodernists say, then it becomes impossible to argue for rights based on the sheer fact of being female. We cannot legally protect a category of people if we cannot identify that category. And by the way, the feminists who are protesting this are, are um, they're actually a minority. Most feminists are going along with the, trans, the transgender agenda. In fact, women, women who protested are being called TERFs. Have you heard that term? It's T-E-R-F, and it means trans-exclusionary radical feminists. And that's being used as a slur. Um, so the woman, like I mentioned, last night I saw an interview with a woman who's, who's you know, been banned from Twitter and Facebook because she is a TERF. And uh, the, the uh, interviewer immediately threw that at her, you know. You're a turf, right? You're a turf. So this is considered a, a slur. Um, I'm, I'm actually on a, a Facebook group, a, pri a private group. Um, they have a public group as well. But it's um, a group of very conservative Christian women and radical leftist lesbian socialist feminists. <laughs> and we've come together behind the scenes. And we're work starting to work together. And we've actually published some co-authored pieces. You know, with, OK, you guys know Concerned Women for America? OK, so Penny Nance, who's the president of Concerned Women for America, co-authored a piece with, oh, I forget her name, the president of Wolf, which is the Women's Liberation Front. <laughs> you know, anything with Liberation Front in it, <laughs> you know, it's pretty radical. So Women's Liberation Front. And they co-authored an article and put it out on what, uh, USA Today, I think. I don't remember exactly. So we're working behind the scenes with, with the TERFs, with the radical feminists who are seeing the problem. And this has been really cool, because this has given radical feminists a chance to hang out with very conservative Christians. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're not as bad as we thought you were. <laughs> hmm. And especially males. There's a, there's a Christian, you guys know the Christian Post? Uh, the Christian Post has an, uh, a particular reporter who's really reached out to these radical feminists. And he's, offered, and he's authored many articles on them and um, given them a, a platform to express why they're so concerned about the transgender agenda and how it is destroying women's rights. And he talks to, and it gives them a chance to even meet a conservative Christian male. And that's even more dis disturbing to their preconceptions. You know, the Christian men are actually nice and, and, and supportive and polite and, and affirming. It's just blowing them apart, all their preconceptions. And here's the other thing. These are very leftist people. And the leftist press will no longer publish them. They will no longer give them a platform. And so the only place they can publish is in Christian places like the Christian Post. <laughs> and the, the Federalist, anyone know the Federalist? Okay. And Public Discourse. Um, the, these are the places they get published now. <laughs> and so uh, this is a wonderful opportunity. For, we're, we're having an opportunity to break through that cultural divide and reach out to these very normally hostile secular socialist women. Okay, so that's one thing we can do. Make, you know, make this an opportunity to reach out to secular people who see the problem. What do we do with someone in our own family or church or medical practice or a classroom identifies as gay or trans? I hope you notice the language I've been using. Honor your body. Respect your biological identity. Live in tune with your body. Live in harmony with the creator's design. This positive language is what we need to use to overcome the negative image 
that Christians so often have, right? We need to get past the message. The only, if our only message so far has been it's wrong, it's a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. That's the message most people pick up from Christians. Our goal should be to show that God's moral rules actually are based on a high view of who we are as human beings and show us how to live with greater fulfillment. In addition, we can be proactive. Studies have found that the strongest correlate of both same-sex orientation and transgenderism, far stronger than any genetic link, is simply childhood gender nonconformity. That means kids who behave in ways that are more stereotypical of the opposite sex. I'll give you just one quote from the academic literature on this. One study found that childhood gender nonconforming behavior is a consistent early predictor of future non-heterosexual orientations. So in Love Thy Body, I tell the story of a young man named Brandon, not his real name, who clearly suffered gender dysphoria from a very young age. Before he was even walking, by the way, gender dysphoria, you're familiar with that term, right? It's the, the sense of, of, of discomfort with your own biological sex. Before he was even walking, his babysitter told his mother, he's too good to be a boy by which she meant he's gentle, compliant, uh, quiet, things that we normally stereotypically associate with girls. When he was in preschool, when his mother picked him up every day, invariably he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping because he didn't fit in anywhere. You know, he didn't feel comfortable with the boys. Boys talk about video games and sports. Girls talk about feelings and relationships, and that's what he was interested in. But of course, the girls didn't really accept him either because he was a boy. He said, I feel the way girls do. I'm interested in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. By age 14, he was looking on the internet for information on sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? First, they made sure he knew they loved him just the way he was. They did not try to change him. A lot of therapists and a lot of parents will try to change a child. I had a friend when I was younger who was a former homosexual. Um, and he said, when I was young, I liked music and poetry. And my dad was baffled and kept trying to toughen me up by pushing me into more traditionally masculine activities like sports. Brandon's parents didn't do that. They told him, it's perfectly acceptable to be a gentle, emotional, relational boy. It may be that God has gifted you for one of the helping professions, like counselor, psychologist, healthcare worker. And of course, in the same way, it's perfectly OK for a woman to be gender nonconforming, to be take charge, rational, assertive, outdoorsy, sporty. Brandon's fa parents' favorite line was, and they said it over and, again, over and over again, it's not you that's wrong, it's the stereotypes that are wrong. In the New Testament, the gifts of the Spirit are not divided by sex. Prophecy and teaching are not masculine, as we might expect. Mercy and service are not feminine. The Spirit distributes them individually just as he determines. And of course, the greatest man who ever lived described himself as gentle and humble in heart. Today, young people are under intense pressure to question their gender identity as never before. Any child like Brandon, who suffers a sense of alienation, is encouraged to identify as gay or trans. I don't know if you're talking to young people who are in public schools today, but Kids are coming home and from kindergarten, first grade now, asking their parents, how do I know I'm a girl? Maybe I'm really a boy. Um, my, uh, in, the, in, the, in the book, I give the story of an 11-year-old who is coming home every day saying, saying, the public schools are making such an issue of gender now 
that the kids are constantly asking each other, are you trans, are you gay? And this little girl's parent finally said, you know, there's a lot more interesting things about people besides their gender. <laughs> but it's being made such an issue that if this, this is the key developmental task you have in life, is to decide if you're really a boy or a girl. And many gender clinics, by the way, if you have a child who's having issues, do not take them to a gender clinic. Most gender clinics today are fast-tracking kids with any form of gender dysphoria into transitioning, you know, immediately putting them on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, preparing them for surgery, and so on. socially transitioning first. Socially transitioning means uh, you know, getting the hairstyle, the clothing, and name of the opposite sex. In fact, in many states today, it is illegal to counsel young parents, uh, young children, to question their gender feelings. Um, and right now, in in, uh, in Congress, right now, is something called the Equality Act. Have, have any, any of you following the Equality Act? You, you need to be following it. You need to be following, it's passed the House of Representatives, which means it only has the Senate, and it has, an, it has a lot of votes in the Senate already as well. If the Equality Act is passed, it will be illegal in all states to do anything except affirm a child's sense of gender identity. And if it does, by the way, some people say, well, it's not going to pass the Senate because of Mitch McConnell. But if it doesn't, it'll come back next year. This, this bill has been presented in, in, the, um, in Congress several times. What's new about this, it used to be called ENDA, Employment Non-Discrimination Act. It was changed to Equality Act when they added transgenderism. But it's been introduced year after year, and every year it gets, it gets farther, it gets more votes. Parents today are feeling helpless. I had a chance to write an article where I interviewed several parents of transgender kids, and it was um, and it was really uh, heartrending to talk to them because they, they, they did take, not knowing any better, they took them to gender clinics, thinking their kid would be taught, okay, let's, would be told, let's stop and think about this, where is this coming from, maybe, why do you hate being a girl so much, you know, are there some stereotypes about girls that you don't like, um, did you have any sort of trauma, sexual assault, you know, because that, that often does play a role in, in there was, um, in fact, there was an, a study done at, by, at Brown University by a professor there, her name is Lisa Littman, and she did a study on what's called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Have you heard that term? Okay, okay. true gender dysphoria is like the story I told of Brandon. It, it shows up very early, and usually there's, there's, there's not much doubt about it. It's very clear. What's happening today is young, especially girls, young girls are discovering that they're the opposite sex for the first time as teenagers or maybe late, late adolescents. These are children who've shown no sign of gender dysphoria in the past. You know, they never, they never showed any symptoms of, um, of gender dysphoria until suddenly, until they got on the internet and started seeing all these uh, websites promoting transition as a, a way to solve all your problems. You feel uncomfortable in your body, you feel, you know, you, you have self-esteem issues, maybe you're really a boy. Um, and so it's, because it's not the traditional gender dysphoria, they've coined a new term for it, rapid onset gender dysphoria, because it's showing up suddenly in, the, in teenagers. And by the way, it's, and it, in the past, transsexualism has been primarily a male thing. And in recent years, it's suddenly become female and um, I have a slide that I don't have tonight with um, uh, uh, graphs, graphs from several Western nations. And you can see the graph is going like this and then I mean, the visual impact is really stunning. The number of girls who are coming out as transgender now, the graph just looks like this. In the last 10 years in England, the number of girls coming out as transgender has increased 10 years, 4,000%. So this is rapid onset gender dysphoria. And here's the deal, though. These are very troubled girls to start with. 
60, around 65% of these girls in the, in the Lisa Littman study, the Brown University study, 65% had already been diagnosed with some sort of psychological issue, and depression, um, depression and um, autism. Autism is the most common. Autism has been uh, most reliably associated with trans transsexualism and transgenderism for a long time. Nobody knows quite why. But these were kids who were already diagnosed. You know, a lot of teenagers have depression and anxiety, and, but it never reaches the level where they've been diagnosed, right? I mean, think back to your teenage years. So these were kids who had already been diagnosed. They'd been severe enough that their parents had taken them to a therapist and been diagnosed. So these transgender kids do tend to have a lot of other issues going on. And it's just bad medical care to say, you know, oh, you, you identify as male or female, you, know, you identify as the opposite sex, okay, puberty blockers, you know, social transition, let's go. But that's how gender clinics are doing it now. My, I have a friend who took her child to a Christian gender therapist in Texas where there's not a law. It's not illegal. And the therapist said, I will not counsel your daughter anything but affirming because I might lose my license. She's that, she's that afraid of losing her license, even though Texas has not yet passed a law outlawing um, therapy for teenagers. Anyway, that's, if, you want, if you have a child who has an issue, many of my friends are having to Skype. They, they find, uh, you call me, email me if you, have, if you need somebody. There are a few therapists out there, and you usually have to, um, you know, Connect with them via Skype. Okay. <laughs> so the culture is very much on the side of the trans issue today, and that's why it's up to us. Brandon's parents fought for him. This was not an easy thing to work with a child through years and years and years of deep distress. And in the church, in our Christian schools, we need to fight for our children. We need to help them find their God-given identity in a culture that tells them all identities are up for grabs, that there are no signposts, that even their biological sex is a social construction and gives them no clue to who they are. Now, why is it that the Christian church isn't on the forefront yet of these issues? What's the main barrier? that keeps Christians from doing this kind of ministry? The answer is that Christians, too, hold a kind of dualism, a kind of divide, just like secularists do. We call it the sacred-secular split. You're familiar with that term, right? So the sacred-secular split um, makes many people think, well, Christianity applies to the upper story, where we talk about church and Bible study and so on but they really don't know how it applies to the, the so-called secular realm. In fact, they think the secular realm is, is not as important, not as valuable, and uh, that the realm of the body is not so important because after all, in heaven we're gonna lose our bodies anyway, we're gonna be spirits floating around in the ether. So one of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. The reason Christians think this way is that they, we have lost touch with our own heritage. The early Christian church was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that devalued the material world, just like modern secularism does, though for very different reasons. The early church was facing philosophies like uh, Gnosticism. Right? You studied that in some of your Bible study courses. Gnosticism and Platonism, you know that term because Plato. And Manichaeism, you might know that term because Augustine was a Manichae for a while before he became a Christian. But all of these isms taught that the, this, this world is the realm of evil, death, and corruption. Gnosticism even taught that this world was recreated by a low-level deity, an evil god. There are several levels of spiritual beings, and it was an evil god who created this world because, after all, no self-respecting god would demean himself mucking about with matter. 
Gnosticism denigrated the body as the prison house of the soul. And the goal of salvation was to escape the physical realm and leave it behind. So in this historical context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary. It taught that the material universe was created by the supreme deity, not a low-level god, but the supreme deity who was good. And therefore, this universe is intrinsically good. At the time, Christianity's greatest scandal, though, was the idea that that same supreme deity had entered into the realm of matter. Whoops, I think I, I skipped one slide. There you go. The greatest scandal was that the same supreme deity had entered into the realm of matter and taken on a physical body. So the, in, so the incarnation was the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And what's more, when Jesus was execu executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape the prison house of the body, as Gnosticism thought we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He came back in a physical body to the Greeks. The ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. This was regress. Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? The whole idea of a physical resurrection was utter foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul puts it. And what will happen at the end of time? God's not going to scrap the material universe as though he made a mistake the first time around. He's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heavens and a new earth. So the Apostles' Creed affirms the resurrection of the body. This is an astonishingly high view of the physical realm. I have to tell you, there's nothing like it in any other philosophy or religion. And the only appropriate response is to honor God with your body, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. I'll end, I'll end with one more story that I found just recently. It's a, a very stunning story of a woman who had lived as a man for 10 years, she had successfully passed as a man for 10 years, calling herself Jake. And then she converted to Christianity. And you know, sanctification sometimes takes a while. She did not think at first that she had to reclaim her identity as a woman. She said, I aspired to be a real man of God. And then as she was praying, one day, she seemed to hear God, God say to her, you cannot claim to love me and yet reject my creation. And she knew what that meant. She was rejecting her body as a woman. And so this is the case we need to make with our secular friends biblical, and with our Christian friends. The biblical morality is based on loving God's creation on accepting who God made us.